0: am I on the right path? Surely you've asked yourself that question before. And not just while hiking through unfamiliar woods, though certainly in those cases, I did quite a bit of trail hiking as a kid. And my father often took me and my twin brother camping in in different parts of Texas, Tyler, Mineral Wells, Glen Rose, and other places as well. And much of our time on those campouts uh, was spent journeying down hiking trails, and without fail, we would encounter forks in the trail. And after a while, especially when trying to make our way back to camp, I'd begin to ask myself, am I on the right path? In those moments, what, what makes one path right and another wrong? Well, it depends on where you're trying to get to, doesn't it? Every path leads somewhere, the question is, is that where you want to go? Trail hacking with dad is not the only time that we find ourselves asking the question, am I on the right path? It's actually a very common question at this particular time of year, on this particular day each year. With the start of a new year mere hours away, many people are asking, am I on the right path? That's what it is. New Year's resolution is all about. It's about recognizing that you're not on the right path, that your your current path is not leading you to where you want to go, and that some changes are in order. Life is a journey, right? But to where? Where is your path taking you? Where do you want to go? With those questions, we begin our study of 1 Peter. I invite like you to turn with me to, to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. You can find it very near the end of the Bible, specifically on page 232 in the second half of the Pew Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, beginning with the first two verses. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let us pray. Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, may Your grace and peace be multiplied to us in our hearing. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, upon opening any letter, whether scriptural or otherwise, we ask ourselves the same set of questions. Who is the writer? To whom is he writing? When did he write and Why? Well, the writer is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, it says. We know Peter. He's one of the first disciples of Jesus Christ, called by Jesus to to leave his fishing business to follow him. Peter, who spent the next two to three years of his life traveling around Israel and beyond with Jesus. Peter, who was appointed as one of Jesus' twelve apostles during those two to three years, an appointment which then continued after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. As the, the apostles were entrusted with the message of the gospel and they were commissioned by Jesus to oversee the spread of that gospel throughout their lifetimes. So Peter writes here with apostolic authority. That, that's the who. But to whom is he initially writing? It says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Well, that's a mouthful. What, what does that all mean? Well, the where is more straightforward than the, the who. A little map here, you can see Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. in The top right there, they're, they're not cities, but rather regions of the Roman Empire at that time. Together, they were constituting most of the landmass known as Asia Minor. Today, known as Turkey. You can see Africa to the southwest there, the Mediterranean, Egypt and Palestine to the southeast, Asia Minor in the northeast. Based on something that Peter writes at the end of the letter, uh, we suspect that he had made his way all the way up to Rome in the northwest there, the top left corner, and that he's writing to them from there. Well, coming back to the audience in just a moment, when, that's the third question, when did Peter write? Who wrote, to whom did he write, and when did he write? Well, according to the ancient records that we have outside of the Bible, Peter was crucified in Rome under the reign of Nero somewhere around 64 or 65 A.D. And based on the way that that Peter describes the, the kind of persecution that's being faced by the Christians in this letter with no clear reference to the immediate threat of death at the hands of the state, because of the lack of that type of a reference, it's believed that Peter wrote this just before things got really bad under Nero. So just before Nero publicly blamed Christians for the great fire of Rome in the middle of 64. Probably 62 or 63 A.D. is when Peter wrote from Rome to the churches there in the Northeast. But why? Why did Peter write this letter? To, in short, to, to encourage Suffering Christians. And and from our hindsight perspective, to prepare them for the even worse suffering that was to come. As bad as things had been for believers since the time of Christ's resurrection until this time, well, things were about to get a lot worse. And as bad as things got under Nero when Peter and Paul were murdered, Things As bad as things got after Nero and the, the reign of Domitian and after Domitian, the reign of Trajan, well, it got even worse 200 years later under Decius and Diocletian. So then Peter is writing to encourage these suffering Christians and those who would come after them to encourage them to suffer well. But whom specifically is Peter writing, writing this letter to at first? Well, he dresses them as those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. The dispersion, the the diaspora, it's the term that had been used for nearly a thousand years by this point to refer to Jews. Jews who had been scattered or or taken captive during the Assyrian captivity and destruction of the northern kingdom in 722. And Jews who had been scattered or taken captive during the Babylonian captivity and destruction of the southern kingdom and of the temple in 586 B.C. And of course, both of the, the preceding terms here, elect, or chosen, and exiles, or sojourners, well, those are likewise Jewish terms, just like diaspora. Jewish terms used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the people of Israel. So then the question is, is Peter writing to Jewish Christians in Asia Minor? Well, yes and no. Certainly any members of these churches in the Northeast there who happened to be Jewish converts were included in his audience, but we believe that the majority of Peter's audience would have been Gentiles by birth. Not only because these were predominantly Gentile regions, and that's, that's true, but also because Peter addresses them in ways that only seem to fit Gentile converts. For example, chapter 1, verse 14. Chapter 1, verse 14, Peter writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance." Doesn't seem like something you write to, to Jews, but to Gentiles. Verse eighteen: Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Well, that's not the way Jewish apostles spoke to Jewish Christians, referring to the, the ways of their forefathers as futile and ignorant. So he seems to be writing predominantly to Gentile. Christians in Asia Minor. And yet, in verse 1, Peter uses these Old Testament Jewish terms to refer to these largely Gentile believers. That's interesting. This application of, of old covenant language to the new covenant people of God is most explicit in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 9, where the very language that God had used at Mount Sinai when he establishes his Old Covenant people there on the mountain in Exodus 19, those very exact phrases are applied by Peter to the New Covenant church. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, he writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Every person who is united to Christ through faith is an elect Exile. Chosen by God to be His treasured possession among all peoples, but not yet dwelling in God's perfect presence, and thus an exile on the earth. Ever since the first man and the first woman were cast out of the Garden of Eden, all people of all times and all places have lived in exile, away from God's perfect dwelling presence. We're all exiles, but, but there's something unique about the exile of those who have been reconciled to God and made His people through faith. Just a moment ago, right before I began this sermon, Mike read from 1 Chronicles chapter 29. and We saw how David described himself as a stranger and a sojourner on the earth. David used that language, a stranger and a sojourner, but the first person to use that language was actually Abraham a thousand years earlier. Upon the death of his wife, Sarah, Abraham is seeking to purchase a place to bury her from the Hittites who inhabit that land. And and Abraham declares this. He says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place. The author of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, he picks up on this language of Abraham and of David in chapter 11 of Hebrews. A passage that we read just two weeks ago as we considered the Abrahamic covenant. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, the writer says this, These all, meaning Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised to them, but having seen those things and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, now, if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, you know, Ur, of the Chaldees, Haran, well, they would have a- opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were exiles on the earth seeking a homeland. So yes, th- there is a sense in which every human being is an exile on the earth where we all live east of Eden. But for those who have been reconciled to God through faith and His promises, well, there's an even greater sense in which we understand ourselves to be exiles. Because we know what God has prepared for us. We know that we already possess an eternal citizenship in heaven. That this world is not our home. We, knowing that, that makes us even more so exiles on the earth. Secondly, we no longer fit in with this sin-cursed world. Knowing that this world is not our home, we no longer simply seek satisfaction in it the way we once did. We've been made new, prepared for the holy city to come. And thirdly, we are exiles on the earth because the world recognizes, the world recognizes all these things about us. The world does not like this. It not only treats us as strangers, but it treats us as enemies. We are elect exiles dispersed throughout a world that is not our home. And this is a very critical perspective to have in resisting the cultural pressure to live contrary to God's designs for our lives. It's one of the primary emphases of this letter, so much so I was tempted to title this series Pilgrim People. Pilgrim People, with with our time on earth being a temporary pilgrimage as we journey to our eternal home. That's true, that's the major emphasis of the letter, but, but that can be easily misunderstood. We need a guard against fixating on our hardships. We need a guard against viewing our hardships as a means of earning our salvation as we journey to heaven. Peter's about to explain that, that while the hardships we face, they do test and they do strengthen our faith, well, our earthly pilgrimage is not ultimately about qualifying ourselves for heaven. That's the self-centered view of man-made religion. It simply views your life as all about you, all about your quest to finally make it to heaven. But that's not what Peter is saying. So rather than simply titling the series Pilgrim People, I've titled it Pilgrim Priests, as this captures both the first and the second main emphasis of Peter's letter. That our earthly pilgrimage is not about securing our own salvation. That's secured through faith. No, our earthly pilgrimage is about helping others to secure theirs. Encouraging them to remain steadfast along the way. Going back to that that key verse, chapter 2, verse 9. Read the second half this time. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That is. You may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's the purpose of your pilgrimage. To proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. To bring others into this new covenant community as they join us on this pilgrimage to heaven. We are pilgrims and priests agents of reconciliation, a mediating presence on earth. Our identity as pilgrims, it emphasizes it emphasizes our distinctiveness from the culture around us, while our identity as priests emphasizes our ministry to the culture around us. Pilgrims emphasizes distinctiveness from the culture. Priests emphasizes our ministry to the culture. We are pilgrim priests. Peter's going to further flesh out both of these concepts, both of these identities throughout the letter. Well, that's all from verse one of the letter. I'll, I'll greatly pick up the pace now to, to make it through 11 more verses in our time together today. Looking at verse two, notice the role of each person of the Trinity in these next three phrases of verse two. Each of these phrases modifies the adjective elect in elect exiles. Peter's saying to his readers and and to us that we are elect, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowing is more than simply foreseeing or, or knowing in advance. The language of knowing in Scripture, it regularly communicates an intimate knowledge, close relationship. God's foreknowing is His choosing to set His covenant love upon a person to make them part of His covenant people, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Next, we are elect in the sanctification of the Spirit or or through by means of the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, the word sanctification, it, it can be used to refer to our ongoing growth in godliness. That's how we usually use the term sanctification, right? Our ongoing growth in godliness throughout our earthly pilgrimage. But the word sanctification in the Bible, it can also refer simply to our conversion. The moment that we are brought into a covenant relationship with God our Father. The moment we are set apart from the world as one of His people. And with the way the phrase Sanctification is being nestled here between the Father's relational foreknowing and the Son's sprinkling with His blood. Well, sanctification here in chapter 1, verse 2, it most naturally refers to the Spirit's work of conversion. The Spirit's work of bringing about the new birth, as we'll talk about in verse 3. And finally, we are elect, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Again, as, as with the language in the previous phrase, the language of sanctification, in this context, the language of obedience to Jesus, it most naturally refers to obedience to the call of the gospel, what the, what the, the apostle uh, Paul calls the obedience of faith, the obedience of faith which results in being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. That language of being sprinkled with His blood, it calls to mind the language at Mount Sinai where the people of Israel were sprinkled with the blood of God. It's covenant as He made them His covenant people. Exodus 24, verse 8. So Father, Spirit, and Son. The the Father purposes the salvation of His people. The Son accomplishes the salvation of His people. The Spirit applies that salvation to His people. And finally, the end of verse two, halfway through the sermon, we reach the formal greeting. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. But what does that mean? What what is this blessing of grace? Well, finally getting to the outline, we're we're going to use the remaining verses to, to briefly consider three of the main gifts of grace. The first being the greatest of all gifts, the one that we've been focusing on this entire time, the gift of salvation. Grace be multiplied to you in salvation. God's saving grace. Look at verse 3. Blessed or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So through the death and resurrection of the one true Son, God the Father has made us His sons and daughters. He has caused us to be born again. With the emphasis being that we can no more t- take credit for our second birth any more than we can take any credit for our first birth. point is that salvation is all of grace. Saving grace. And ours is a, a living hope, He says. It's a living hope because our Redeemer lives. He is not dead. And so so because our Redeemer lives, that He's been raised from the dead, we know that His sacrifice in our place has been accepted. So it's a living hope. It's a living hope because it bears the fruit of a transformed life. Something Peter's going to spend a whole lot of the letter fleshing out. And what is it for which we hope with this living hope? What is our confident expectation? Verse 4. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable. It cannot end. It's undefiled. It cannot be corrupted. It's unfading. It cannot lose its luster. It is kept in heaven for you, so it cannot be lost. See what Peter's doing here as he, he writes to these suffering Christians and those who will come after them and suffer even more. Peter's primary way of encouraging suffering Christians is to direct their gaze beyond their earthly pilgrimage and on to their heavenly home. In whatever trials and hardships we face in this life, we too must be reminded to, to lift our eyes to the glorious inheritance that has been promised to us by God's saving grace. This is the only way to have joy amidst suffering. Look to the inheritance that cannot be taken away. Peter continues, it's an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So not only is the inheritance that has been promised to you being kept and guarded by God, but you are being guarded by God's power through faith. This bleeds into the next point about the grace of steadfastness in the face of trials, about God's sustaining grace. You see, when we doubt our power to hold fast to God in the difficulties that we face or that we think lie ahead, When we doubt our power to hold fast to God, we are comforted in knowing that He is the one who is holding us. He will sustain the faith of those who have trusted in His Son. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.39 Neither tribulation, nor distress, nor persecution, nor famine, nor nakedness, nor danger, nor sword. Romans 8.35 Our eternal inheritance is secure, and this is a comfort in our difficulties. Grace be multiplied to you in steadfastness. Verse 6, he says, In this, that is, in your understanding of these matters about your certain and sure salvation, for this reason you rejoice. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been greed by various trials. Notice how encompassing this descriptor is. Various trials. What Peter says here not only applies to persecution faced for the name of Christ. It applies to that, but but as in James chapter 1 that we studied not too long ago over the summer, we're talking about steadfastness amidst trials of various kinds. Steadfastness amidst all forms of hardship faced during our earthly pilgrimage. They can all be endured with joy. Rejoicing in our salvation, that's the supernatural power of sustaining grace. That's the supernatural power of grace for steadfastness. No matter how long a life you live here on earth, no matter how marked it is by suffering, your time here on earth is but a little while, he says, in comparison to eternity. You rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why does Peter describe trials as coming if necessary? What is it that makes our trials necessary? Well, one obvious response is we still live in a fallen, sin-cursed world, so everyone necessarily experiences suffering on this side of heaven. Okay, but there's still the question of why God allows any given trial, especially for those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Son. And even more pointedly, why does God allow the unique sufferings that Christians face for their faith in following the Son? It's obvious why the life of a pilgrim priest necessarily invites hostility from others, right? Right? Even apart from the words that we speak, our transformed lives, just the nature of our transformed lives as we live different from the culture around us, it suggests to others that there's a different way to live. It suggests to others that there's a better way to live. Our lives call out to others that they are on the wrong path. And people don't like that. Especially once we didn't make it plain with our words that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through Him repenting of their sin, and trusting in Him for forgiveness. So we understand the, the world's hostility toward pilgrim priests, but the question still holds, why does God allow it? Why does God allow His redeemed people to suffer as they serve Him on the earth, journeying to their eternal home? Well, no doubt God could give a myriad of explanations for the nearly countless ripple effects associated with any specific trial that you face. There's a myriad of explanations. And no matter how intense the suffering may become, we must never demand those explanations. God is never answerable to us for what He permits. We are always answerable to Him for how we respond. But one thing we can be certain of, one thing we can be certain of is that one of the purposes of God in every trial we face is to further purify us by it. Like the fire that is used to burn away the impurities and precious metals. As Peter continues, that's the metaphor he uses. He says, you have been greed by various trials, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, as everything on earth perishes, though it is tested by fire. May the tested genuineness of your faith be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is at His return on the last day. Verse 8, though you do not see Him, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's clear he's saying the testing of our faith through trials, it strengthens our faith. Much like winds and, and droughts can force the roots of a tree to grow deeper and stronger, making it stronger, trials force our faith to grow deeper and stronger. And this reveals both to us and to others that Christ is more precious to us than anything else. It reveals to to us and to others that He is more precious as we grow in longing to be with Him and to see Him face to face. So then our trials, Peter's saying, our trials bring glory to God. Our trials bring God glory in the transformation, the purification they cause within us. Our trials bring God glory in the way that He supernaturally sustains us and comforts us through those trials, proving His promises to be true. And God glorifies Himself in our steadfast worship and delight in Him despite those trials. So may grace be multiplied to you in steadfastness in the trials that you face. May grace be multiplied to you for your good and for His glory. Finally, verse 10, concerning this salvation, concerning this salvation of yours, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, in the Old Testament, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glories. So a few things to work through in these two short verses. First, recognize the consistent witness of the apostles uh, that it was the Holy Spirit, the, the third person of the Trinity, who inspired the writers of the Old Testament, just as he inspires the writers of the New Testament. For example, Peter, in his second letter to them, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he'll say this, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that inspires and breathes out Scripture. So that's the Spirit of Christ who was in them foretelling the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. But where specifically were the sufferings of Christ foretold in the Old Testament? Where do we find that? Well, Peter leads it to us to search that out for ourselves, but of course, the clearest examples of teaching about the suffering of the coming Christ are Isaiah fifty-three, Psalm twenty-two. Those are the two main ones. There are other passages like Zechariah twelve, the promise of Genesis three fifteen that we've been considering the last four weeks, and of course, there is every single passage that deals with the spilt blood of the Passover lamb, right? And beyond that, every passage that deals with the, the sacrificial death of any animal. For every sacrifice of every animal in the Old Testament pointed forward to the need for and the provision of a substitute to die in our place. Like the ram that was caught in the thicket on Mount Moriah when the life of Abraham's son was spared in Genesis 22. The message of our need for and the promise of a Savior to reverse the curse of sin and death is the main message of the Old Testament. And indications of the price that that Messiah would pay to secure our deliverance, well, they're found all throughout the Old Testament in all the blood that is spilt. But notice what else Peter's saying here that the Old Testament prophets wrote about. Again, verse 10, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. What is the grace that was to be yours. Well, certainly it includes the grace that was theirs, the grace of eternal salvation for all who believe God's promises now as back then it includes that, but it certainly includes the unique blessings that we enjoy, the unique blessings of being able to look back on Christ's life, death and resurrection. See, things are much clearer on this side of Christ's coming. That's a unique grace for us. The fulfillment of all those ancient promises that the prophets wrote, the fulfillment of that breeds confidence in us. As we look back at the life of Christ, it breeds confidence that God will ultimately fulfill the rest of his promises as well. And that's a unique grace that is ours, that was not theirs. But the Old Testament prophets, they they had more to say about the age in which we now live than just that. It wasn't just that we'd be able to know the Messiah and, and understand more fully what he did and how he brought salvation. It's that, but there's more. Think about the emphasis of Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the, the first sermon preached by a Christian, as Peter explained what was taking place from the Old Testament. Peter concluding words of Acts chapter 2 sermon are these. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's about the gift and promise of the Holy Spirit. We live in the age of fulfillment. The age of the Spirit. When everyone who was a true member of God's covenant community receives the promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit to empower obedience and steadfastness and service of God. See, that was something that was not true of the old covenant community. It's something that prophets like Moses bemoaned that they had not all been touched by the Spirit of God. And he wished that they would. Well, that was foretold that in the new covenant community, anyone who is part of the covenant by faith has that promised Holy Spirit. Notice how our final verse, verse 12, explicitly draws attention to the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Verse 12, Peter says, it was revealed to them, the Old Testament prophets, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Well, that's my final point. Grace be multiplied to you in Spirit-filled living. Grace be multiplied to you in salvation, in steadfastness, and in Spirit-filled living. Not just saving grace and sustaining grace, but sanctifying, empowering grace be multiplied to you. The grace to preach the good news to others that they too may be saved. The Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament saints, all those who believed in the promises of God by faith, they long for what we have now received, the Holy Spirit. And notice that it's not just that these Old Testament prophets wrote about us. That's not just that they wrote about the age of fulfillment, the age of the Spirit in which we now live. They wrote for us. It says they were serving not themselves, but you in having written these things down. Beloved, the Old Testament was written for you. Do not neglect the first three quarters of your Bible. They so often say it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, with regard to the events of the Old Testament, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The Old Testament was written for us Primarily. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul writes, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Do you find that you need encouraging in your trials? Do you find that your hope needs strengthening? Do you find yourself wondering if you are on the right path? Well, at the start of a new year, consider making a resolution. Resolve to daily search and inquire carefully what God is doing in the world that He has made. Daily search and inquire carefully what God has been doing since the creation of the world. What He's doing in and through your life now. What role He would have you to play. And in what ways you need to alter your path. Resolve to daily search and inquire carefully all that God has revealed in His Word. Things that earlier prophets longed to know. Things revealed to us, for us. Things now available to every single English speaker in their own language. Things broadcast over the air and available at your fingertips at any moment. Searchable and listenable and paired with any number of study notes. How can we neglect so great a gift of God's grace? Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word. Lord, use Your Word daily to correct our path. Use Your Word daily to to sanctify us, to to purify us, to, to transform us. Use Your Word daily to empower us in our role and in our responsibilities as pilgrims and priests on the earth. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.